in Connecticut, and she wanted me to make sure I conveyed that to you, and uh, she sends her love, and as well as, you know, we, um, being part of this church has been one of the great um, blessings of our life. I'm reminded of the, the camp out in Woodland, <laughs> where some of you uh, first came to worship. And I remember salvations there and prophetic word there. I, I remember having our first actual service or gathering in the Masonic Lodge down there. Uh, we sent out, I think, about 45,000 uh, little um, newspaper inserts that went into the newspapers all over at Worcester. That's really how this church was planned. 45,000 of these things. Our, our church in Connecticut uh, cor uh, correlated them and put stickers on them with that, you know, get the 10 cent postage. And um, we had no idea when those went out who would come or if anybody would come. But about 120 people showed up first service and uh, about maybe uh, a third stayed and became the, the, the planting group um, and were ultimately confirmed and the church was established with the constitution and bylaws and um, officers and trustees were appointed, members were added, um, and ultimately elders were discovered. <laughs> and, uh, and we thank the Lord for faithful elders, now pastors, uh, Mac and Kathy, and I want to just commend you for your, your labor and work here. Um, amen. Amen. <laughs> and then, of course, there was the building of this, this building. And uh, I remember getting the call while the trusses were up. And suddenly, a gust of wind had come, and the trusses ended up in the basement. Um, it just seemed like there's always been some adversity. But then, should we expect any less? When we're doing something for the glory of God, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be temptation. And we ultimately find out that our Rock is Christ. And that's how this church stands. That's how this couple stands. And those of you who are here have stood and will continue to stand is in Christ. Um, I love the church. I love Jesus more. But then again, the church is his body. So to love Jesus is to love his church. To love his church is to love Jesus. And Mac, I just want to say once again, I thank God for the love that you have for the people of God. 
And I was going to say this to tomorrow, but while we were worshiping, the Lord really quickened me something I just want to tell you. I remember standing here, and I think, Al, you were here, and we were putting you in as pastor. I remember the word the Lord gave me was, he's a watchman. And that's what the church needed at that time in its history. It was a watchman on the wall, a protector of the flock, someone who would have his eyes out and, and guard against false doctrine and guard against um, wolves in sheep's clothing and, um, and be like a father to people who were hurting and who were maybe disillusioned and getting a little bit lost. And I want to just commend you for being faithful to that calling. But what I saw this morning in worship was God is, I feel like there's been some tensions and some pullings in your life now, and even in the church. Um, not, not tensions that are like, you know, something going on. That's not what I'm sensing. Tensions of just the way the world has changed. Tensions that we experience as grandparents, tensions of raising families in this environment where it seems like we're being polluted with fear and anxiety and worry and strain every day. And then, of course, this comes into the church, and it affects our ministry as well. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came into a similar environment with his people. They were literally being, they were held captive in their own, in their own land by the Romans, by legions of Romans, by a system, an empire that was corrupt, that was controlling, that had the disease of self-interest. And into that world, Jesus Christ came and announced the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. And he came as the forerunner before him, John, preaching the kingdom of God. It's just that nobody expected that the king would not use force to subjugate those under him, but would ca captive their hearts through co-suffering love and sacrifice. That his kingdom would not be a top-down administration held together by a hierarchy of power and control, but a kingdom that would be bound together in love friendship and sacrifice. A kingdom that would not be distinguished by class, economic, social status, ethnicity, where he would go on as Paul would later describe his kingdom is not, or gender, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond or free, that a kingdom that was held together, that looked past all the external measurements. That's the kingdom that God's building. 
And that's the kingdom that we are here to represent and what you are a custodian of as a pastor. But like I said, there was great tension when Jesus came with his kingdom. There was already a religious system in place that was very concerned about holding on to power and control. Let's not forget, it was the religious system and the state that conspired to crucify the Son of God. As Peter said on Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, he laid the blame squarely where it belonged. It was evil within the hearts of men that was exposed at the cross. You want to see how awful human beings can be to one another? Look at the cross. So awful that we could commit deicide and kill God. <laughs> Not literally, you know what I mean, but in a in this sense, that's what they... So Jesus put it this way. You can't put the new wine in an old wineskin. And you can't put a new patch in an old garment. And he was speaking to a religious person when he said this. Something has to change within you. Like he said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born from above, Nicodemus. You're not going to get this any other way, and some, something happens in you. And Mac, what I sense now is where a watchman was necessary, and still as pastors we watch, that God, I believe, is going to place on you the ability to be a facilitator of another change within the church, to facilitate another move, a transition. And the thing about these things, Mac, because I've been going through it myself, is there's great tension like when, an, and, and, which is why it has to be something new. When you try to just add the new to the old, Jesus said, it'll tear it. It ends up tearing the old. And, and as a pastor, you hear the tearing of the old as this. Why are we doing it that way? Someone's being torn. Why can't we go back to the old way? Someone's being torn. Why are you preaching about love so much? Why are we singing about it so much? As we just did. Someone's being torn. So we either stay in the place where we're constantly being torn, and ultimately those who were feeling the tearing, as Jesus was saying, this kingdom that I'm preaching is not I'm not on a white horse wielding a sword. I'm a, I'm a co-suffering lamb. See, that's the big surprise in Revelation, isn't it? That the beast is overcome not by a bigger beast, but the beast is overcome by the testimony, the blood, and they love not their lives unto the death. <coughs> So to become a new wineskin, to become a new garment, this is all for you, by the way. <laughs> to become a new wineskin, to become a new garment, you've got to become a new garment. Something has to happen within us. As pastors, as elders, as where's our worship leader? As our worship leaders, a change in us. And I'm going to talk to you about maybe that a little bit this morning. And uh, 
into prophecy. You can cut the transcript there. I hope you received that word. From watchman to facilitating of something new. And I know you feel ill-equipped for that, as ill-equipped as I feel. But I know we're called to do it. And if we're open to letting God do something in us, it's part of the process. You see, the kingdom of God is all about flexibility. There's nothing in the Bible that says the kingdom of God is the ever-shrinking kingdom. <laughs> Honey, I shrunk the kingdom. That's what a lot of people do. With the, and the way they feel about the church is it's the incredible shrinking kingdom. There's no, there's not a single parable in the Bible that, that illustrates the kingdom of God as something that's shrinking. It's an ever-increasing kingdom. It's like leaven leavening a lump. It's like a seed that grows into a big tree. It's But then again, we wonder, you know, where, where is it? How come God doesn't, you know, why does he even make atheism possible? That's a question I asked the Lord one day. Why doesn't he make atheism impossible? C.S. Lewis said, if God were to give evidence that was irresistible and irrefutable, then he would erase you. That God's project of redemption involves you remaining you. God doesn't want to erase you, eliminate you. He gave you freedom, the power to choose, the, the ability to say yes to God. He gave you that ability to say yes. And that's all faith really is, the ability to say yes to God's invitation to know him and to continue to grow and see him differently, and know him differently. That's really what we're called to. I'll tell you this, I do not believe in the same God that I believed in 20 years ago. God didn't change. I changed. <laughs> I changed. <laughs> and I'm changing. being molded. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Go ahead and open your Bible there. Peter was a, obviously the more dominant apostle. We know this from his life. After all, he was given the keys of the kingdom. His ministry would unlock things. He'd open doors. He certainly opened it to the Gentiles when he went to Cornelius. He'll preach at Pentecost. He will die along uh, with Paul in Rome about 64 AD. They happen to both actually be in Rome. Because after all, where are you going to go if you're going to announce a new kingdom? If you're going to announce that the new kingdom has come, the kingdom of God has come, where are you going to go and announce that? Well, you're going to go right to the capital, Rome. And both of them had it in their hearts to get to Rome to speak about the kingdom of God. And both of them gave their lives, ultimately, in Rome. Although there's some speculation by some theologians that Paul ended up getting as far west as Spain, but that's speculation. Most people agree that he died in Rome. 
Peter writing this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, says, to the refugees, and there's an interesting word, isn't it? <laughs> there's a word that really became very much talked about in recent months, refugees. Peter's writing, you know, some of your Bibles will say to the exiles, or to the, and he says they're in where? Babylon, or Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Calls them the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification by the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling with the blood of Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Where are these refugees? They're in actually a Roman province. And they're actually not really refugees at all in the strict sense of the word. They're natives of that area. But for the sake of the kingdom of God, they're refugees. The same way another writer tells us that we are pilgrims in this world. This world is not our home. This world is not our destiny. The kingdom of God is our home. The challenge is to live in the kingdom of God while we're living in this world. And see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're here. The kingdom is not just hanging on, waiting to go to heaven. God's doing a work here. Jesus, if that was the case, if the goal was to get you to heaven, then let's just have mass suicide. I didn't suggest that. But that clearly is not the goal. Or, or mass you know, rapture. So Peter now writing to these who are in Babylon, who are, but not literally Babylon, but in an area that is controlled by Rome, and they feel like strangers and refugees. And why is that? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 now, the same book. And beginning in verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. So Peter, again, where is he writing? To these eastern provinces that are now under the empire of Rome. And these Christians that are there no longer feel that they're at home anymore in the world they no longer feel that the world is their home so they feel like refugees strangers foreigners a good question for us as believers to ask ourselves is how at home do you feel in the empire of men how at home does it feel ought to feel strange to you. 
that this world, for whatever, is running opposite in a counter direction with counter values. And it ought to be easy to see for the believer, easy to expose. Rome began as a republic. Then it became an empire. By the time Peter is writing this epistle, it is now a cult. A republic to an empire to now the cult of Caesar worship. When a new Caesar would come into power, the Roman Senate would meet and they would decide, what shall we put on the coin to honor Caesar? They would actually take votes. Let's call him King of Kings. Let's call him Prince of Peace. And they would mint the coins with these reflections of Caesar on it so that while you did trade, while you did commerce, you're reminded all the time, Caesar's great, Caesar's in control, Caesar's your peace, Caesar's your king. You understand why maybe these Christians were not feeling at home anymore in the Roman Empire? Why they're feeling like refugees? Because they're having to exchange currency that, that's saying something that's they don't believe anymore. Caesar's not our peace and safety. Jesus is. His kingdom is not of this world, but it's in the world, and I'm a citizen of it. One of the provinces that was in the Babylonian Empire, and the Roman Empire, was Pergamum. Pergamum, as you know, is a, well, a church. A, the church of Pergamum is mentioned in Revelation 2.12. And here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. Yet you have held to my name and have not denied your faith in me. Even in the day my faithful witness, here's a man by name who's mentioned in Scripture. Even the day my faithful witness Antipas was killed among you where Satan dwells. Pergamum was fully, as a, as, a, as a Roman city and provincial area, it was fully immersed in the cult of the emperor. And Antipas was martyred. Why? The Revelation tells us, John, because he would not venerate the emperor. And these Christians are beginning to suffer. The ones Peter's writing to, they're beginning to really suffer because they too are feeling the squeeze of the culture. They feel the pressure for not worshiping Caesar. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised this fiery trial that's come to try you. Don't be surprised by that. This is the normal tensions which you'd be feeling as a refugee in this world, but yet as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, you didn't have to do much. You say, well, what did you have to do to, to venerate the emperor, to be part of the cult of emperor worship? What did you have to do? It really wasn't much. It was simply this. As you enter the marketplace, all you had to do was pinch a little incense and put it in a censer where there were burning coals right next to the bust of the emperor. Just pinch a little before you went and did your shopping. And go about your merry way. Do your shopping. Every time you enter the marketplace, 
Let's all do it. Simple. Simple. You might also be good to periodically praise the empire, say something as you, like, hail Caesar. Long live the Caesar. Caesar's my prince, my king. You might say something, too, of praise to demonstrate your loyalty. But now, because you've recognized Jesus as king, because now he's your Lord and you've bowed to his name and you've come to believe that he rose from the dead and you've heard his disciples preach in his name that the kingdom of God is here, that there's another king in the land. One who reigns and rules over the hearts of men and not just their bodies with intimidation and fear of death. Listen, Rome was so cruel. I forget the general's name, but in four years after Jesus was born in Nazareth, in a city just north of that, a general, for the sake of an uprising in a northern city that was just, I think, about 15 miles north of Nazareth, maybe four or 15 miles, I can't remember which one it was. When this little city uprose, a general, Vasius, I think was his name, was sent there. He crucified... 3,000 Jews in that city and lined the road from Nazareth north with the crosses of those men just for speaking against Rome. Do you understand what an impression that might have had on a four-year-old little boy, Jesus, growing up in Nazareth? And they didn't take him down once they died. Those bodies hung there until the flesh literally rotted off the bones. Why did they do that? Intimidation. This could be you. You don't get in line. Peter refers to suffering 17 times in this epistle. And he says that you're sharing in the suffering of Christ. Theologian Alan Street, in a book he wrote called uh, about baptism, and it's called this, Caesar and the Sacrament of Baptism. And in this book, he writes about baptism, listen to this, as a rite of resistance. I know Romans 6. I, of course, it's being buried in the likeness of Christ's death. All that way. But from the standpoint of the empire, when you were baptized into pledging your allegiance to Christ, this was seen as resistance to the empire. A rite of resistance. So in that kind of a society, what can you imagine? What I just described to you. A lot of anxiety. A lot of fear. Because you're a shopkeeper. Your livelihood depends on making money in the marketplace. And you don't think anybody is noticing, but you've been walking by the little bust for, for days now. Weeks have gone by. You see it there, and you're looking around, and you're hoping nobody's looking, but you just... You stop doing your little... People are starting to notice. They're starting to talk. The last time you walked by, someone said something. Hey, did you see him? You're starting to lose business because word is getting around. You're following some new wave. You know, Christians were first called atheists. 
Christians were first called atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in the gods of Rome. They didn't believe the emperor was a god. So they were called atheists. They became outsiders very quickly. Outsiders. And there's a lot of anxiety because of this. So Peter tells them what to do in chapter 5. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves and clothe yourselves with humility. In due time, he may exalt you. And then here's his suggestion. And how many times have we quoted this verse but not known the context of it? And here's what he says. Cast all your anxiety on him because he, everybody say it, cares for you. Be sober-minded and alert for your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Living in an empire, church, is anxiety-inducing. And I'll be honest with you, I don't care where you are on the planet. Living in an empire is anxiety-inducing, even in good old USA. <laughs> because empires thrive on producing anxiety in the environment. They thrive on that. Because as people, we're prone to place our faith in the rich and the powerful. And in the institutions that those represent. The empire says this. Cast your cares on us. We will take care of you. Peter says no. Cast all your care on him. He will take care of you. Do you understand? Because on the coinage is emperor's going to take care of us. Emperor's going to do it. Let's believe in the emperor. while ago I finally found the right verbiage what I felt the Lord was doing in my life and ministry the Lord said stop teaching for knowledge and teach for change teach for changing the hearts because knowledge after all only does one thing <laughs> pops up but change is all about becoming a new wineskin. All about becoming a new garment. The kind of person that can facilitate the kingdom purposes of God. Now, not postponing it. See, the, the salvation is not an evacuation plan. Can I say that again? Salvation is not an evacuation plan. It's, it's been preached a lot that way. But it's not. Salvation is learning to live under the authority of Christ in a new kingdom. It is a new politic that is Jesus. God is really the only one who can really take care of you, and here's why. Peter says, because he really cares for you. When men say they're going to take care of you, Watch out. Their self-interest. Their self-interest. Hard to get away from it. I know we Christians say things like, I know God loves me and I know he'll take care of me, but 
that's not really the way we live. It'd be great if we lived as if we really believed God really cared. <laughs> Peter reminds these believers living in these providences, the spirit of the glory of God, verse 14 of chapter 4, the spirit of the glory of God, it rests upon you, don't you know that? But it takes an intentional spiritual discipline, I believe, in today's culture to actually have peace. In a book I read recently called You Are What You Love, You Are What You Love. Just think about the title, You Are What You Love. Reverend Strang says, if our spirit is to be properly formed, we have to attend, be attentive to all the rival formations we are immersed in. I'll say that again. If our spirit is to be properly formed, we have to be attentive to all the rival immersions and know that they're there. In other words, we don't realize that every day we practice little cultural liturgies that are actually working against us. Paul said to the Romans, the Roman believers, again, living outside of Rome, also beginning to suffer some persecution, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen when we have 24-hour cable news? How does that happen when we have cell phones that are kind of bing, bing, bing? When what's more important is how many likes we got on Facebook or how many people saw our postings, commented. You understand those are liturgies? There are liturgies just as much as the liturgy is in the Episcopal Church or Catholic Church or Presbyterian. There are liturgies in our, our culture. We're told every day, every day we're told the economy's not big enough to take care of everybody. So we need to get rid of some people. I'm told every day in Connecticut that people are leaving all the time, taxes are too high. Terrorists are out there trying to destroy us. North Korea is ready to kill us. I heard someone say the other day, Ryan, you know there are five other people in the world that look just like you? You know what that means? That if they make a movie of my life, I won't be able to even star in my own movie. <laughs> That's anxiety. Welcome to the land of anxiety. Welcome to the world of worry. Because if you don't have enough problems, let's just pile on a few more. But not every place in the world, believe it or not, is filled with anxiety. Do you know that there's such thing as the Global Peace Index? It measures how easy it is to be at peace where you live. They measured 161 countries around the world, and what they measured was things like likelihood of violent demonstrations, nuclear weapons capability, crime, number of police officers per 100,000 uh, people, your relations with neighboring countries. Does it surprise you that number 161, the least safest place to live on the planet right now is Syria? Does that surprise anybody? Of course it shouldn't because there's a dictator there that's killing his own people and bombing people and refugees are fleeing and have been fleeing for some time. 
You know where the, the number one is? The, the place where there's the most peace? Tranquility. Where you can breathe clean air and just isolate. Iceland, any, any candidates for Iceland? <laughs> Are you interested in knowing what the United States of America is? What's it like for us, refugees, aliens, pilgrims, who are in God's kingdom, living in, hosted by the superpower? Where are we on the scale? Well, believe it or not, 2010, we were 85 out of 161. Now, in 2017, we have slid to 105. And if you feel, so if you're, feel, if you're feeling, you know, it just feels a little stressful. It just, just feels like it's just a little bit stressful. Well, now you have some, you're not making up. It's real. There really is stress. And everybody's feeling it. I'm stressed. You're stressed. You're not alone. So here's my proposition to you this morning. I love this country, America. But I believe one of the most radical things that you and I can do as Christians living in America is actually embody the peace of Christ. Isn't that strange that that's actually radical? To embody peace is radical. It's radical. To cast all your care on him. Because he cares for me. This perhaps is probably, I think, the more, most powerful witness you could have in the world. More so than putting a Jesus fish on your bumper. I think a better witness than the Jesus fish is peace. Be at peace within yourself. Exhibit it, model it, embody it. Why not? What was the first words that Jesus spoke when he rose from the dead to those disciples that were huddled, the Bible tells us, in fear? They had turned the prayer room into a panic room. They said they were afraid of the Jews. And it was in that atmosphere of fear that Jesus, not through the door, not on a knock, come on in, but just suddenly appeared. And first words of the new kingdom. The resurrection is, peace be unto you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace. How is it that Jesus is at peace in this world? How can we be at peace in this world? We've got to breathe the same air he's breathing. See, the Bible says he breathed on them peace. He was close enough when he breathed on them, they could smell his breath. They were taking his breath in to their nostrils. He breathed on them. Got to be close enough to Jesus to inhale what he's inhaling. There's a genre of scripture called apocalyptic literature, as you know. It's like the scripture that theologians categorize books like Daniel, Revelation, as apocalyptic literature. A 
purpose of apocalyptic literature is to unmask, if you will, to tell us what's really going on around us because we don't always, we're not going to know what's going on around us by watching 24-hour cable news. We know what's going on around us because we hear the critical voice of God who critiques the context in which we live in. See, Israel's prophets were unlike any other prophets that Babylon had or Persia had. Egypt, they all had prophets too. Y'all know that. But Israel's prophets were different because you know what they did? They criticized their own people. The most dangerous thing for our future is an uncriticized present. That's why being a prophet is not popular. It is if you're telling everybody what they want to hear. That's very popular today. But to be critical and say, you know, you need to change this. This needs to be put in order here. Peace unto you, not fear. But unfortunately, apocalyptic today is seen by most of us, it certainly was for me for a long time, is just end time stuff. And the whole goal of it being prediction. Tell me what's going to happen. What do you see in the future? But that's a misunderstanding of the whole genre altogether. The point of Scripture, all Scripture, is to unveil, unmask the realities around us, expose them for what they really are. Like Peter says here, be, be aware, the devil is around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And how does the devil devour? With fear. That's the whole reason why the lion roars. Do you know that? To literally terrorize the prey where he, he just can't move. He roars before he strikes to terrorize. While the Roman Empire pretends to be the gift of human civilization and the zenith of human accomplish, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, from that perspective, from a heavenly angle, says, no, Rome is a monster. Rome is a beast. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar because in any generation, a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future, everybody knows a beast is a beast is a beast. It's a beautiful metaphor for describing man-made kingdoms and empires of beast. But the beautiful thing is, Jesus doesn't come like a beast. When, we're the, veil, when the, the throne of God is unveiled in Revelation, who is sitting on the throne? A lamb. A fresh slain lamb. A lamb who from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. It was said of Dr. Martin Luther King, as you know, a real hero, in my opinion, of ending racism. Uh, ten laws, four laws, and I, I'm, I'm going to clarify that in a minute, because racism has not ended. <laughs> 
It's still here. But laws have been changed, but it was not without price and cost. Lives were lost. Lives were lost. But he was willing to lose his for it. In co-suffering love, he, he felt sorry for those who were actually doing the injury. He refused to retaliate. Just as Jesus from the cross refused to call 10,000 angels. He refused. He felt sorry for those, pitied those who had such anger and hate in their hearts. Saw that as being the greater evil and knew out of love for humanity that the only way to win was to love. That's the truth, church. So it's not that we haven't made some progress in the air of racism. There has been progress. But remember, this is a spiritual thing. The spiritual thing. I just got a few more minutes. And it should be the job of the church to expose and unmask these evils when they rear their head up. 